Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked." Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it. It, if I find 45 there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let, the Lord be, let, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So a couple months ago, I think it was the beginning of uh, January, I uh, settled on preaching on Abraham, and as I got uh, through the Abraham narrative, I realized there was no way I was going to be able to condense it in about seven weeks. So we took about an eight-week break from Abraham, and now we're back uh, for the next four or five weeks to hopefully finish this incredible story uh, about this man named Abraham, who was such an influential figure um, in not just uh, the Christian religion, but also in the Jewish religion and other religions as well. Uh, So before we look into this passage, let's take a moment to pray. Father, speak to us to your word this morning. Help us to see uh, the grandeur and the wonder of the message of the gospel. Help us to see its work in the life of Abraham and the stories that surround him. But Father, I pray that these these thoughts, these meditations would not just be something to feed our intellect, but they would speak to uh, the deepest places of our hearts. So Father, we need to hear your voice this morning. And we invite you into our presence so we can hear you. In Christ's name, amen. So I want you to think back for a minute um, to when you were either 18 years old or 21 years old. Now I realize for some of you that is a little closer, 
uh, than for others. But think back to, to either your high school graduation or, or your college graduation where it felt like all of your life was ahead of you. And I want you to think about what your dreams were at that moment. Uh, we all have dreams of what uh, the good life is and what it looks like. Uh, For us, all of us have our desires aimed in that direction of experiencing the good life. But I want you to think about what expectations did you have for your life at that point? What were the things that you were hoping for yourself and uh, the things that you were confident that you would even achieve? And then I want you to take a moment to fast forward to wherever you are now. All right, fast forward to wherever you are now. And the chances are that your definition of what the good life is has at least somewhat changed or been tweaked a little bit. Chances are that the expectations that you had for your life either haven't been met or they've been derailed or they've been delayed by some sort of life experience that you have gone through. And when you think about it, it opens up a gap And that gap is the gap between our expectations that we had for ourselves and the reality of the lives that we live right now. Now, for some people, that gap just feels like resignation or or at least maybe for you, it's turned into contentment that my life hasn't turned out this way, but I'm resigned to that fact or I'm content with that fact. But for others, it becomes a great source of anger. Anger that they haven't fulfilled their expectations or maybe even anger at God because God hasn't helped us to fulfill the expectations that we've had for our lives. But how we deal with that gap says a lot of things. It says a lot about who we are. It says a lot about how we deal with control in our lives. And it says a lot about what we think about this journey of faith in which we are all on. Now, chances are, if you had an opportunity to speak to a very young Abraham and Sarah and ask them what their expectations were for their lives, the answer would have been very similar to any young couple in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Their expectation for their lives would have been to have many sons and to grow a great family, maybe even a great nation, out of those sons. You see, that was the the, the definition of success in the ancient world, and it would also have been a sign to them and everyone around them that they were favored and blessed by God, the Most High God. But of course, we know a little bit about the Abraham and Sarah story, and we know that after lots of time and many years of futility, the greatest expectation that they had for their lives had not been met because Abraham and Sarah were unable to have children. They would not attain every young couple's dream in their world. They would not reach the definition of success that they hoped for. And maybe even others would despise them, thinking that that somehow they had offended or displeased God and they were getting what they deserved, that they were carrying the result of that. But by the time they had reached their later years in life, Abraham and Sarah had become used to this fact. They'd become resigned to it. 
When the Abraham story opens up, uh, Abraham is in his 70s and Sarah is in her late 60s and they had probably grown accustomed to this disappointment, resigning themselves to the thought that this was just the way things were going to be in their lives. And they were operating fine in that resignation until one day God invades their story. One day, God steps into their story and he opens up just a little bit of thinking that there could be a new and different possibility with their lives and their story. You see, in Genesis chapter 12, God visits Abraham and Sarah and God comes to him making promises. He tells Abraham that his hand of blessing is going to be on him for as long as he lives and the generations that come after him. He tells Abraham that he is going to give him a promised land for him and his family and his people. But the final promise that God made to Abraham was the one that meant the most to him and his wife, Sarah. God promises to Abraham that he will give him a son. And that that son will become a great nation. God was going to give Abraham and Sarah what they most wanted. He was going to fulfill their definition or their dream of what the good life was all about. But as you read the Abraham story, one of the things you confront immediately is that even all those promises were there, that didn't mean that they were not going to have to wait for it. In fact, as you read the Abraham story, you consistently see God delaying the promises that he gave to Abraham and Sarah. Sure, God would come in sporadically over the years and reaffirm and remind Abraham of the promise, but still the promise continued to be delayed for years and years. They would continue to wait without a baby. And so, when, when Genesis 18 opens up, the chapter we've read this morning, God once again visits Abraham and Sarah. And as we look at this narrative, we see three things. We see the power of God's promises, we see the power of his judgment, and then finally we see the power of gracious intercession. The first thing I want to look at is, is the power of the promise. And really, you don't get a sense of this because we didn't get to, to read the whole passage. But if you go back and read verses 1 to 15, you get an idea of the power of this promise. Because when the chapter opens up, Abraham is, is sitting under the tree. Uh, it says it's a, a very warm day. Abraham is sitting under the tree, minding his own business. When he looks into the distance and he sees three men are traveling along the road. And as he looks at these three men, he immediately knows that what he is observing is what theologians call a theophany, which is a physical representation of the Most High God. So as Abraham is sitting under this tree, he sees God himself approaching him. They are traveling somewhere. They're, they're on a journey somewhere, but Abraham steps into their path and says, you've got to come in and spend some time with me. Abraham makes them a meal. As I've reflected on this passage this week, I've, I've thought about my grandparents. And my grandparents, uh, when, we'd have, when we were grandchildren, we ever go to visit them, they had to cook us a meal, 
or we had to eat something. Maybe you have grandparents that are like this. We'd go and we'd visit, we'd sit down, maybe only be there for 10 or 15 minutes, but they were anxious and discontented until we ate something. We had to eat something, and then they would feel better about things. Well, Abraham is the same way. He badgers God in this sense. These three men, he badgers them to eat a meal. And so in this incredible example of, of, of ancient Near Eastern culture and hospitality, he prepares an elaborate meal for his guests. And while they're sitting around enjoying this meal, having a dinner table conversation, the Lord says to Abraham in verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, we don't hear Abraham's response to this promise, but we do get to hear Sarah's response because we discover that Sarah is in another tent, but she's, she's listening in on this conversation. And as she hears this promise reiterated, the passage tells us that, that she laughs in cynicism and in disbelief. Now, if I'm in Sarah's shoes, I'm thinking that she has good reason, maybe, Uh, to feel very cynical at this moment. After all, Sarah is in her mid-90s, so the the child-bearing years are are long in the rearview mirror for Sarah. Physically, she believes this to be an impossibility. She's also probably resigned herself to this unfulfilled expectations. She realizes that this is the, the cards that she's been dealt in life, and she's come to terms with that. But she has to also be cynical because she's heard this before from God. She's heard these promises year after year after year. For over 20 years now, she's been hearing this promise, and still there was no child. So in disbelief and cynicism, she does what she can only do, and she laughs at the promises of God. I think in many ways we can probably relate to Sarah and her feelings at this moment because I don't know about you, but often cynicism and unbelief can creep into my heart. It can can creep into our lives and we just don't believe or we can't even imagine that anything in our lives will ever be able to change. The reality, the reality that we live in tends to to overwhelm the belief that God can be active in all of the situations and circumstances of our lives. You see, in response to, to Sarah's cynicism and unbelief, God doesn't chide Sarah, he doesn't chide Abraham, but instead he looks to Abraham and he says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, you see what God is doing is he's reminding Abraham that his promises are rock solid. He's reminding him that God's promises, they're not limited to time or limited by any sort of physical condition. God isn't even limited by our own disbelief and our own cynicism. Instead, God's promises are firm and they are true. They will be true in reality, in time, and in space. You see, friends, God's greatest promises come to us in the message of the gospel. 
Because if we take a, a true estimate of our souls, we realize that, that within us we are lacking. That left to ourselves, we could never make things right spiritually for ourselves. But what the gospel does is that rather than calling us to settle into the belief that our lives will always remain messy and guilt-ridden, the gospel instead lifts up our eyes and calls us to gaze at the great promises of God. It tells us that our mess can be made beautiful. It tells us that our sin can be atoned for. It tells us that our rebellion can be redeemed. In the promises of God, we can be made whole again. And in those promises are great power. So we see here the power of the promises of God, but we also see quickly the power of God's judgment. And we saw this uh, really in verses 16 uh, to 21. And, and what the passage tells us is that these men, their, their time with Abraham was not their final destination. They were on a journey, and this was simply a, a small sidestep or a small interruption because they were on a path, and what the Scripture tells us is that that path was the path of judgment. And in verse 16, God begins to even fill Abraham in on his plan, and he tells Abraham that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were about to be swept up in the judgment of God. And these names, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, are not even unfamiliar to us today. Um, they have been associated ever since this moment on from the height of sin and rebellion. Even the name Sodom is in our, our English lexicon now, uh, representing the height of sin and perversion. And what Abraham learns is that the outcry about this city has become so great that God was about to step in in an act of judgment. Now, culturally, we really shy away from this idea of judgment, and we really shy away from any talk about God coming in judgment. After all, why can't we just talk about God's grace? Why can't we just talk about his love? Why does there have to be these passages about punishment and judgment? Now, while this may sound nice, at least culturally, this is really not the God that our hearts ultimately and really desire. You see, I think the truth is we are, we are obviously and, and clearly slow to think about God's judgment as relates to our own lives. We don't like to, to think about that idea. But whenever we are confronted with, with evil and with oppression and injustice in our culture, or we've become victims of those things, then we certainly do want a God who is willing to come in judgment. I think, I feel like culturally we've had a lot of marches on Washington over the past year or two. Maybe it's just me, uh, but my wife and I were, were in D.C. last weekend and uh, we spent some time uh, on the mall in D.C. And uh, while we were there, we saw these corrals that were set up and what we discovered is that these corrals are, are made to keep people in order while they march on Washington for their various different causes. 
And the, and the government officials in Washington have stopped taking the corrals down. They're just leaving them up for whatever next march happens on Washington with whatever cause or whatever it is where people want to speak out against some injustice or oppression. And see, what it reminded me is that there is something inside all of us that wants to speak out against those injustices and oppressions in our culture. We want to see injustice addressed. We want to we see wrongs be made right. We want to see oppressions be stamped out. We want a God who is just and will come in judgment to make things right. And what we see here is the power of that judgment. In fact, if you, if you keep reading on in Genesis 19, you'll read the narrative of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed by the judgment of God. But those cities are not wiped out before there is a curious back-and-forth conversation between God and Abraham. And that brings us to the, to the last point, and that is we see the power of of gracious intercession. And we see this in this conversation in verses 22 to 33. Uh, I think at some point in our lives, every one of us has had a difficult teacher, okay? If you're in school right now, you can, you can probably identify who that teacher was. Well, for me, my difficult teacher was in fifth grade, and I remember very distinctly the names we called her, that I'm not going to tell you uh, what those names were, but I remember them very distinctly. And, and, and uh, she would be kind of overall nasty, and uh, I just think she didn't like me. I think she kind of picked on me. She treated me unjustly amongst all these sorts of things. And so I did what every kid does. I went home, and I began to, to complain to my parents about it. And, uh, you know, my parents did what most parents do. Hey, you're going to have difficult teachers. You're going to have to live with it at time to time. But then I kept coming home and talking about it. And finally, my parents started to agree with me. They agreed with me that I was being treated unfairly. And so they scheduled a conference and went and confronted that teacher on my behalf. And I'll tell you, to this day, that meant so much to me because my parents were willing to stick up for me. My parents, in love, were willing to intercede on my behalf, and it meant so much to me. Well, in many ways, that is exactly what Abraham is doing in this story and in this narrative. When you look back at the very beginning of the Abraham story, you discover that Abraham was one of three sons. And one of his brothers, Haran, died prematurely, leaving uh, a nephew behind, at least a nephew for Abraham. And, and that nephew was named Lot. And Abraham, being the good brother, felt responsible to care for his neighborhood, or, or for his nephew, to step in for where his brother had passed away. And so throughout much of the Abraham story, you see lots of concern for this nephew named Lot. So when Abraham learns that God is going to come in judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah, it immediately creates a problem for Abraham. Why? Because Lot and his family were living in these cities. And so what Abraham does in order to protect his nephew Lot is he pleads on behalf of the righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. Really, probably what he's doing is he's pleading with God on behalf of his nephew, Lot. 
And there's this interesting back and forth conversation that involves all sorts of numbers that we read before. Uh, And a lot of people have tried to look at those numbers and figure out what the symbolism is behind all of it. But the long and short of it is this. In the face of judgment, Abraham pleads for grace for someone whom he loves. Even as the discussion goes on and on between God and Abraham, he continues to ask God for more and more grace in the face of God's judgment. And in the end, what we learn is that Lot is spared from the judgment of God because of the gracious and loving intercession of his uncle, Abraham. And friends, this is a picture of the gospel itself. Because the gospel tells us of the ultimate gracious intercession. Because the gospel tells us that in our sin, we all stand before the judgment of God. We deserve the judgment of God just as those residents and cities of Sodom and Gomorrah did. We all deserve that punishment because of our sin and our rebellion. But what the gospel tells us is that in unbelievable grace, Jesus Christ stepped in to intercede for us. And for him to intercede meant that he would need to take the punishment himself. And this he did for us at the cross. At the cross, he took the judgment so that we could stand in grace, so that we could stand in merit and favor that we did not deserve. You see, Abraham interceded for Lot very simply because he loved him. He loved him dearly. And what the gospel tells us is that it was that same love that motivated God to intercede for us. And even now, Christ stands before the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us, pouring grace and pouring love into our lives. He does it because he loves us. He does it because his love for us is never-ending, never-ceasing, and steadfast. So what we see here is that he is a God who keeps his promises, opening up to us possibilities that we never could even imagine. He is a God of judgment, but ultimately he is a God who lovingly intercedes for those whom he has chosen to be objects of his never-ending love and his unceasing grace. Let's pray.